Colossians chapter 2. This is a first for me. Um, Just so you know, I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and my next sermon is ready. We're going to hear that next week, Lord willing. I preached um, this particular sermon last week at the TGC Atlantic Canada Conference and have had something in being a pastor for almost 25 years that's never happened before to me where someone walked up to me and asked me if I would consider preaching this very same sermon at my home church. And uh, I smiled and was pretty polite about all those things and to be honest with you, fight my own version of, of following the Spirit and uh, just said, okay, Lord, that's just my ego being all flattered, and I'm just going to shove that aside. And um, yet, as I prepped to preach, I could not shake that particular request. I just couldn't do it. And um, I really felt the Lord was telling me to do this, and uh, you do with that as you will, but I am going to do that this morning. And so what I want to challenge us, it's on your bulletin, about what it means to be alive in Christ. And practically what that means is how to live your life in Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been a part of church or you would claim to be a Christian, I want to read a verse to you and I want to know what your reaction to this verse is. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the power of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. All right. So Matt's alive and well. That's great. What about this hymn? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen? A couple of you are mumbling it. That's good. And maybe your reaction is a bit of a tell. Because riddle me this often in Christian circles, you read a verse like this. You'll get an enthusiastic amen or two. You sing a song like, and can it be, like I heard you sing, amazing love. You see, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and hymns like this have been the rally cry on Sundays for churches like this one around the world for centuries. But what I'd like to know is how come it seems that Monday to Saturday, our rally cry is much more akin to Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Too many Christians, including me, will wake up from our afternoon nap this afternoon or tomorrow morning to go to work. And our anthem, as we go into Monday, will be this. If you wake up in the morning mean and grumpy and you frown at everybody that you see, and if you like your oatmeal nice and cold and lumpy, then you're a grouch just like me. If you love it when it's wet and cold and raining and the music that you like is all off key, if you're happiest wherever you're complaining, then you're just a grouch like me. If you like a big pile of trash is pretty and that ice cream is yucky as can be, and if you can't stand a cuddly little kitty, then you're a grouch just like me. That's Sesame Street's Grouch song. 
My task last week and what I hope to do with you this morning as my family is to unpack for you Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. And when you come to Colossians chapter 2, you've actually come to the crux of the letter that Paul is writing. And if you're here this morning, you need to know Paul writes this letter from prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. He has no idea what life is going to be like. And in chapter 1, he's already greeted them. He's prayed over them through the second part of chapter 1. He's expressed a deep longing and a desire for them. But what is often the case is we chicken McNugget our Bible, and we don't realize that it should be taken in holes. Galatians and Colossians, Philippians and Ephesians are all written at the same time to four different churches or groups of churches when Paul is going through extreme adversity. And if you read Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you'll notice things. To the Galatians, Paul would say, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has so quickly bewitched you? To the Ephesians, he told them to put away the things of the world and to put on the things that are Christ's. In Philippians chapter 4, he entreats these two ladies, Eutychus and Syntyche, and he begs them to come together in unity around the gospel. And to the Colossians, he says, your Colossian heresy is your adding to the gospel. But the background of these four letters is not a Skittles life for Paul. If you read in Philippians, some are taking advantage of his imprisonment. He writes to them and said, said, some preach Christ of contention, rejoicing that I am in prison. Others are abandoning the faith. Some are embracing it, even sacrifice near death to do it. He says he doesn't know what his end game will be. He is seeing God work. He is watching Satan attack. He's seeing Christians struggle. He's watching churches lose focus and get off mission. He's he's there as pastors, jockey for position. Some are suffering. Others are taking advantage of people. Does any of this sound familiar? Does this not sound like church in October of 2019? Now, how about you and I? How do we face trials and temptations? When folks come to us and tell us about a friend who is in sin or a friend who's failed or a friend or another church Christian or something like that that's going through a tough time, is your immediate response, I knew that was going to happen? Or are you brokenhearted, desperate to pray? When we see and hear about things that are happening all around us, when we see churches succeed, is our automatic uh, assumption they're compromising if they're going to be succeeding like that? Let me get to the crux of the matter. I think John Woodhouse puts it best, and here's why I want to preach this sermon. Someone has said that in Christian circles, what is taken taken for granted in one generation is very likely to be ignored in the next, and watch this, denied in the third. Things that are taken for granted can easily be very important matters that were emphasized by a previous generation. Perhaps taking them for granted is a reaction to that emphasis. It is not easy to identify something that is being taken for granted. And so in danger of soon being ignored and even rejected precisely because 
We are taking it for granted. And one possible candidate for the being taken for granted category today in some Christian circles is the Christian life. How are you living your Christian life? Calvary Baptist says, my family, my deepest fear as almost 48 years old and being in pastoral ministry for 25 years is that I'm finally the witness to a generation of young pastors and young Christians and even churches that do the Christian life in a social media world. Actually, for many of you, you've been raised on it. Where trends and ideas and traditions and instant gratification, the ability to pillage an idea or to try a gimmick, take so-called Christianity and reduce it down to nothing more than what works or what looks good. It's like we've reduced Christianity to chicken soup for the soul. And yet, despite all of our best efforts, we are witness to a spike in Christendom and especially in pastors and ministry leaders and church membership and giving and being committed to people that are burning out, sinning out, tapping out and all levels of our churches. In fact, the greatest irony and tragedy of our modern so-called renewed Christianity or that reformed movement to which Calvary says it's a part of is actually becoming nothing more than what I call a modern Judaistic approach to the gospel, or dare I say, even a hybrid Catholic renewal. And here's what I mean. I see too many of us reading books and nowhere near enough of us actually reading the book, the Bible. Too many of us are living out our Christian life based on what other people have said to us rather than spending time in what God says to us. I once heard a pastor tell me in my seminary days that books are great, and I have lots of them, but he said, if you read only books about the Bible, it's like eating pre-chewed food. You're only getting everybody else's meal. You're never cooking your own. Get into your Bibles. Too many are asking me personally what book I'm reading, who I'm reading, who I'm following. But very few people ask me, Steve, what part of the Bible are you reading right now? What passage of Scripture is occupying your mind? How is God working in your heart? How is your prayer life? What sin is God causing you to wrestle with? Rather, most of our conversations are about issues and debates, the latest controversy, Let's be honest, as a culture, we're an issue-to-issue culture. Instead of living the Christian life in a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus, we seem to know about the Puritans, but are we actually drifting from the Savior of the Puritans? And what I'm seeing in a world, and oh, by the way, the so-called Christian world, is God help us, we are too busy yelling at each other over matters that don't actually matter. Assuming the worst of each other, hiding behind Instagram and tweets and blog posts and Facebook statuses about issues we've neither studied up on or read up on, all in the name of seeing current or cool or worse, caring. We think that shepherding as pastors or being Christians in our churches is somehow connected to violent protests 
where we lecture the world about their sin, all the while we wink at our own. Yet 1 Corinthians 13, which is often called the love chapter, which was written to a church, by the way, not written for weddings, is being largely ignored, and it's to our peril. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I beg of you and me and us to remember always this. We are ministers of the gospel. We are not the Messiah of it. We are to tell people about Christ, but you can't be somebody's Christ. We are called to give our lives to the church, but we are not the one who gave his life for the church. That's Jesus. Here's what I want you to take away this morning. How do you live your Christian life? You need to be like Christ. So how do we know Jesus? How did Jesus present himself in the scriptures? You remember in Galatians, that famous passage that we in church call the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, long suffering, forbearance, all these things. Listen, that list is not there for lip service. That list is not there to have great life group studies. That list is there so it's the rally cry of the heart of any and all Christians who want to be like the one who saved them. And that's what amazes me. You see, Paul's remedy for standing firm wasn't a podcast or a snarky tweet. It was a recalling of the gospel. It was deeply meditating on it. Did you not love the songs we sing today? There's no story he can't redeem. Son of God, worthy, worthy. You see, in Colossians chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the preeminent Lord of creation and reconciliation. In chapter 2, which I want to talk about, Jesus is the preeminent Lord, the fullness of deity, the forgiver of sins, and the conqueror of satanic forces. In chapter 3, Jesus is the resurrected preeminent Lord and our life. And in Colossians 4, Jesus is the preeminent Lord, the one worthy of our devoted service. What's happening in Colossians is that false teachers and false teaching claimed that there was a spiritual experience being found in some sort of secret knowledge and that you had to find it and only the really mature people, the people that had really arrived could find it. And Paul says, hey, you want to know what that mystery is? No Christ. No Christ. And our passage falls into three parts. My first point is taken from verses 6 and 7. My second point is taken from verse 8. And my third point is taken from 9 to 15. So let me read our passage this morning. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read God's word for us this morning? Let's read this. Let me read it aloud to you. This is the word of God from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How? Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now notice this phrase, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, And notice the negative, and not according to Christ. Now watch these pile up adjectives. For in him 
Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him, Christ, from the dead. Now it gets personal. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how did he do this? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And here's how he did it. He set it aside, nailed it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I've got a simple outline and I want you to follow it. And if you read this passage and apply it, here's what I guarantee you as people. I know that you and I will be much more consistent in our Christian life if we read and apply this passage. If you read and apply this passage, you will be more joyful in the midst of setbacks and trials. You'll be more thankful. You'll be able to endure hardness as a good soldier. You'll have more peace in the midst of your struggles. You'll be more hopeful in the return of Christ. You'll be more settled in the ability to help others. You'll be more content to serve God and trust him with the results. You'll be more driven to love and have unity around truth. You'll have more patience to walk the messy journey with knowing others. And you'll know that Jesus has defeated the power of sin while we still struggle with the remnant or the presence of sin. You see, if you apply this passage, you and I will weep at evil and rejoice in good. If we will strive and not simply survive. If we will love our enemies and pray for those who mock God. If you're going to find new morning mercies. And that joy does indeed come in the morning. If we will thank God. If. And we will be like Paul if you obey these words. Look back a few verses in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. And he says, that is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And here was that stewardship. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, how are you going to live your Christian life? Very quickly this morning, if you want to live your Christian life in a 21st century world, according to Colossians chapter 6, Verses 6 and 7. Sorry, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Here's my first point. Nourish yourself on Christ. Nourish yourself on Christ. 
How will you and I actually live in Christ? That's everywhere in this passage. To be alive to Christ, being alive in Christ, then you have to nourish yourself. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding and in thanksgiving. I said to this conference just a few days ago, and I'll say to you, I studied for weeks, if not for several months on this passage leading up to the conference. I searched and read books and commentaries. I meditated over God's word, and I believe that the spirit of the living God through the living power of the word of God gave me the encapsulation of this, and I want to share that with you this morning. Do you want to know how to live in Christ? I am going to give you the most profound set of principles that you have ever heard. Prepared to be amazed. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. No, 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 no. Listen to me. Read your Bible and pray every day. And you'll grow, grow, grow. My pop said it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. I'll tell you what that is not in just a few minutes. You see, that word therefore in chapter 2 verse 6, we need to find out what it's there for. And it refers back to everything Paul has already said in Colossians chapter 1 all the way to Colossians chapter 2 verse 5. If you look back in Colossians 1, verse 1, he says, he, he, he gives greetings to those. And look at this phrase. He says, greetings to you, grace to you and peace from God. Don't, don't just fly over that. Notice what Paul says. When you understand as Christians who you are, we can pray that you will have grace to you. We pray that the grace of God will come to you and then peace from God will come to you. You you get grace rolled out upon you day after day after day. And as you get that grace, then you find peace. You notice he doesn't say, have peace to God, to you, and grace from God. He puts it the other way around. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 1 to walk worthy. And then Paul spends time thanking God, praying to God, worshiping to God, extolling the greatness of God. And now it's time to tell you. What he says, I want to address you. He says, I'm in prison. I'm living out what I want to write to you. I want you to walk as someone who has received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, let me tell you what that is and what that isn't. When he says this in verse 6, Christ Jesus, the Lord, that's not a challenge to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. It's an admonition to remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you've got to realize how much you need that admonition every day. You've already accepted Jesus Christ, he says. You've believed this. Now you need to think about it and be nourished by it. You need to meditate on it. And how are you going to do it? He says, look at verse 7. You will need to be rooted in it. If you go back to chapter 1, that rooted is agricultural. Paul says, I want you to both grow up and bear fruit simultaneously. If you know anything about agriculture, that's actually hard to do. A tree either is growing or then it stops growing and then it bears fruit. But in the gospel, Paul says, no, you do both. You bear fruit and you continue to grow. As you read your Bible, pray every day, you grow, grow, grow. When you read your Bible and pray every day, you start to show the fruit of the Spirit. And you need to be rooted in Him and you need to remember Jesus Christ is Lord. Then he goes to an 
uh, a different from agriculture to architectural. He says, built up in him. So he says, construct your life on this reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you do that, you'll establish your faith. Oh, and by the way, notice what he says. He says, you've already received this. And when you root yourself in Christ and you build yourself up to Christ and you you establish your faith in Christ, here's what the result is. You're abounding in thanksgiving. Does that not sound familiar? That's why I ask you, what's your rally cry going to be tomorrow morning? When you feel tired, when you're stuck in traffic, when you experience St. John's roads. In Philippians, he tells us to be thankful and to rejoice in the Lord always. He told the Ephesians to redeem the time. He told the Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances. How are you going to do that? How are you and I going to do this? Then we've got to pray and we've got to read God's word. And not to do just to find good sermons or Sunday school things. Not to win trivia games or be the smartest person in the room. To be rooted in Christ. To be built up in Christ. To establish your faith in Christ. To find your purpose and your value and your identity and your power in Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you are having problems with your marriage... Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're stressed out over your kids, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you don't know, young people, what your future career should be, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you're dating or you're trying to figure out, should I date or shouldn't I date, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you get, when the washer breaks and the water leaks down through the ceiling, Jesus Christ is Lord. When your car breaks down or it's not as new as you'd like, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's just true. Do you believe it? Do you comfort yourself in it? When you feel like, I got no friends. Oh, but you've got a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, it's not that complicated. The problem is, I think, not understanding what to do. It's trusting God to do what he tells us to do. Even when we're facing Hardship. So that's the positive thing. Notice now in verse 8, number 2, my point, starve yourself from the world. You need to nourish yourself in Christ. And verse 8, starve yourself from the world. Notice what Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. By what? By philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, I want you to notice Paul uses that captive slavery language. This is if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, you will read over and over again about the preeminence of Christ who would set you free. And this is a theme through all the prison letters. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. To Galatians, in Galatians 5.1, Paul said, For freedom... Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The best way I can explain this, I said this, my favorite movie of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo. I love that movie. It's taken off of the book, remember? And if you remember, the very innocent and naive Edmond is betrayed by what he thought was his best friend. So he ends up in, in, in prison for, what is it, 20 years? He's whipped and beaten. But one of his fellow prison mates is a priest. 
who was also very well trained in the arts of assassination. And he's really almost trying to do penance to get God to forgive him and be worthy. But he tells Edmond about this treasure. And they spend years digging out of this prison. As you know, Edmond, the priest dies. But that day, Edmond escapes. He goes and he finds the treasure. And in so doing, he also gets himself a little slave-turned-servant who becomes one of his great friends named Jacopo. And one of the great scenes in the movie is after Edmond has found the treasure and he has got more money than anyone could possibly imagine. He goes and buys the biggest castle for himself. And the movie has this strong cinematography as you zoom in on this massively beautiful bedroom. And he's got a bed that's bigger than anything you and I could ever hope or dream to have. And Jacopo goes in in the morning to wake up Edmond and he's not in the bed. And he looks around this room that's as big as this one. And this was his bedroom. And he finds Edmond on the side of the bed, on the floor, sleeping on a sheet. Edmond was rich beyond his imagination. But in his mind, he was still a prisoner. Oh, God forbid. I think so many of you tomorrow will get up. And forget that you are free in Christ and will rather live your life as if you're still a slave to sin. You'll let Satan whisper in your ear, you're not worthy. You'll let a disagreement with your wife make you feel like, why bother? You'll let a marriage failure make you think you don't measure up. You'll let a wayward child Capture your imagination and you'll think that that child has more power than Jesus Christ is Lord. But if you will live in Christ and starve yourself from the world, don't be taken captive to these philosophy and empty deceit, these traditions of humans. It's looking for something that's already yours in Christ. One of the speakers there, H.B. Charles, when he was preaching from this, he talked about this very rich man and he had wanted a certain particular piece of art and he didn't know where it was. And so he commissioned someone, he paid him an enormous amount of money to go find this piece of art and no matter what it cost to buy it. And so the story goes that he spent weeks, months, even years looking. And finally the servant, the hired person comes back to this very wealthy man. And he says, did you find this work of art and did you buy it? And he said, sir, I have both good news and bad news. The good news is I have found the work of art. The bad news is it was in your basement. He'd owned it the entire time. You see, the Colossian heresy, what Paul is telling them to starve themselves from, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, is when you think you've got to look for something that's already yours in Christ. Why look for peace in money? Why look for pleasure in relationships? Why look for satisfaction in substances? Why try to find your identity in a job or your children? You already have that in Christ. So don't pressure yourselves. We've created this type of legalism, or on the other extreme, this anti-legalism. So we've got camps now like never before, and we spew forth our ideas and thoughts on others or issues. In fact, to the church at Ephesus, 
Jesus would write in Revelation chapter 2, he said, you love the stand more than you love me, the Savior. Oh, and by the way, if you're still not able to figure it out, he says, look at it in verse uh, 8, he says, it's not according to Christ. I think the greatest error that we're actually facing in our Christianity today, and I gently say this to us in our church today, is ultimately we are self-focused. We are self-focused. We spend too much time going, here are my issues, my struggles, my enemies, here's my abuse, my betrayal, my failure, my pain, my fear. Francis Schaeffer said in our own generation, emphasized, man or woman cannot begin to, with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. No, rather, bring your junk to Christ. Don't be self-focused. Be Christ-focused. This is what happens. D.A. Carson, I, I don't know if I've told you this illustration or not. It's one of my favorite. This is how you get self-focused even as Christians. When we place and ministry becomes just mere professionalism or we just start acting the part and we don't feel it. And Dr. Carson says when he was doing his master's degree, he was having a, a particularly low point, a discouraging time in his life. Things were not going the way he wanted them to go. There was tension in his marriage. There were issues all over the place. And so he had a friend, a guy by the name of Ken Hall, who suggested that they get away for a weekend and they, they just take some time. They were going to go to a, a very popular water uh, hole about 40 miles outside of Ottawa. He said the water was always clean. There was seldom any people up there. He said you could relax, you could commune, and it was a great little place to just have a lazy swim. He said for a week I built up my excitement to do this weekend getaway. He said to my horror when we arrived, we found the beach covered with hundreds of teenagers. They were having a very noisy beach party to celebrate high school graduation. And I love this. This is classic D.A. Carson if you know him. High decibel sound equipment. He couldn't just say like a, re- a loud stereo or something like that. Belted out the latest rock music so forcefully that residents in Ottawa probably had to shut their windows in self-protection. He said not a few of the young people were already drunk and the combination of celebration and booze and bathing suits guaranteed that the public physical displays would be only a shade less than obscene. He says, deeply disappointed that my evening's relaxation was being shattered by this raucous party. I was getting ready to cover my disappointment with moral outrage. This is what we do when we don't starve ourselves from the world. I was getting ready to do this and I turned to Ken, my friend, to unload my venom, but stopped when I saw him staring at the scene with a faraway look in his eyes. And then he said rather softly, high school kids... What a mission field. Carson says, in one sense, he had seen and heard exactly what I did. In another sense, we had not seen and heard the same things at all. The difference was not in the objective reality, but in his compassion. And I had much to learn. We get self-focused when we think only in terms of discouragement. And once you're discouraged, you'll start to replace Jesus or add to Jesus unless you run to Jesus. Are you discouraged? Run to Jesus because he's Lord. Are you hurting? Then run to Jesus because he's Lord. And then look at this. Thirdly, live your life in the strength of the gospel. Live your life in the strength of the gospel. 
After giving this strong imperative in chapter 8, see to it that no one does this, and he unpacked the negative. But now, Paul's answer to struggle in life or purity for the faith or the way to keep oneself focused on Christ wasn't yelling and screaming. It wasn't a Facebook rant or a snarky tweet. Look at verse 9. Look at what he says. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Basically, he's saying, hey, church, listen, Christ is better. If you're struggling this morning, if you're hurting this morning, if you're doubting this morning, if you're questioning this morning, here's what you need. You don't need, here's two verses and call me in the morning. Here's what you need. Christ is better. Christ is better. In verse 10, notice what he says there. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ has filled you and is your head. He's filled you. Christ is better than anything you can go chase. He's filled you, which means he's head of every denomination. He's head of every pastor. He's head of every elders board and deacons board. He's the head over every congregation, every government, every cultural swing, every relational issue. Oh, and by the way, it means he's head over you. And I I wish I could tell you how Satan will lie to you and try to make you think. Run your own life. Because he's like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons when you do that. Excellent. Excellent. He wants you to believe that you can run your own life. But you can't. Christ is better. Christ has filled you. Christ Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? Yeah. Okay, do you rest in it? Do you think about it and sing about it? Do you pray according to it? Do you bring your pain to it? Do you bring your questions and your hurts and your fatigue and your failures and your desires? Do you bring that hard marriage or that wayward child, that unreasonable deacon's board or that stubborn pastor, that unthankful member of the family, that unjustified rumor, that dry season in your Christian life, that bout of jealousy or covetousness that you do? Do you bring that reality to Jesus Christ is Lord? But wait, there's more. Look at verse 11. Christ has marked you. He says that Christ has given us the circumcision not made with hands. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on that alone, but I won't. It means you're in him. Did you notice how many times in verses 9 to 15, Paul uses that term, in him? You are in him, which means you're under him, means you're kept by him, means you're empowered through him. That means you run to him, you preach of him, you serve him, and you sing to him. Paul tells us that Christ has done for us what we we could never do for ourselves. Pastors and ministry leaders and church members, Christ lived the life you and I could never live. He died the death you and I deserve. He rose from the dead, which we can't do, and now lives and reigns for eternity on our behalf. Are you resting in that today? Listen, that's just true. When you go out and get in your car today and you've got to face whatever's out there waiting for you, Jesus Christ is your advocate, your intercessor. He is the one that pleads for you. 
When God's holiness looks down from heaven upon you and your weakness and your frailty and your fear and all that, Jesus Christ stands up and puts out two nail print hands with nail print feet and a pierce, the side that's been pierced by a spear and says, God, I have died for them. I lived for them. And it's what's called this $50 theological term. It's called double imputation. Jesus took away all your sin. I don't think we struggle with that. Here's what he did do. Then he gave you all of his righteousness, which means not only is your debt paid, but now you've got the Jesus MasterCard, and it always has balance on it. Every time you need to pay more debt, you can just go ring, ring, or even tap, and it's paid. It never says insufficient funds. How much more will your life change this week? If you believe that and live like it. That's why Charles Wesley said, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite as grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. And he said, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Now, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. My clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Jesus Christ, my own. Hmm, Amazing love. Look at verse 12. Christ has identified with you. He's identified with you. We are baptized in him. We have the, uh, the circumcision of Christ. Verse 13. Christ has saved you. You know what? I wish I could have you all implanted with some sort of a, a microphone. And like five or six times a day as you were going about your week, I could just go into a microphone and everybody would hear it. Christ saved you. Christ saved you. As you live your life, you're saved. And then look at verses 14 and 15 because this is the result. Christ has overcome what you can't so you can serve him and glorify God. Look at it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Oh, man, that you would take your fears and your stresses and your anxieties and your questions and your doubts and you would just nail them to You know what they do in camp now? Sometimes when they have a very emotional service, they'll set up a cross and they'll tell teenagers, write out all your questions, write out all your sins, write out all your fears. And then they have a a song and they tell everybody to come forward and nail them to the cross. Sometimes I think we should do that for a bunch of adults. I think you should carry a cross with you and just have a thing of post-it notes. And as things go wrong, nailing that to the cross, it's been done for you. And then look at verse 15. Jesus has already won every fight you'll ever face. (laughs) The old Southern spiritual song says, I've read the back of the book. We win. We win. What's going to face you tomorrow? An illness? A debt? A bill? A school class? A teacher that doesn't 
respect you, a boss that has it out for you, a child that yells at you, a marriage where you feel taken for granted. Jesus already fought that fight for you. He's already won it for you. He's already paid it. So now you can look at it and face it with hope. You don't have to be afraid. And so as we close, I want to ask you, do you have victory in Christ? Do you live your troubled life today knowing, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me and paid my debt. Charles Spurgeon said, if I do but preach God's word, if there were never were a soul saved, the king would say, well done, good and faithful servant. If I do but tell my message, if none would should listen to it, he would say, thou hast fought the good fight. Receive thy crown. This is what we do. This is who we serve. Will you nourish yourself this week on Christ? Will you make the decision, young people, as you go to school, to starve yourself from the world? And then will you live your life in the glories of Christ? Won't make your troubles go away. Oh, but it'll give you a whole new perspective as you walk through them. And you might just experience grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. Lord, you have raptured my heart with this message. And Lord, I'm not just a salesman, I'm also a client. Lord, I've had my own wrestling matches with you about my marriage and my parenting and my grandparenting about bills and unexpected expenses, about people liking me or not liking me, about having enough of me to be there for people or not enough, about being recognized or not. Sick children and wayward children, hurting friends, wanting to fix everybody and feeling like I can fix nobody. But you are Lord. And there is no story that you can't redeem. Spirit of the living God, right now, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, may they come find you. Spirit of the living God, for men and women in this room that are hurting, stressed, anxious, pretending, scared, discouraged, whether it be for themselves or a loved one, may they know there's no story you can't redeem. Lord, help us to live this Christian life in you, to nourish ourselves on you. And Lord, whatever your spirit is saying to someone here right now, may they trust you enough as Lord to move towards you and know how much you love them and how you've saved them. Lord, if someone here needs prayer, help them to be courageous to ask for it. If someone needs to just see you differently, help them to look up to the hills from whence cometh their help. For our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And ultimately, Lord, again, I beg of you that my friends here and my family will have heard a better sermon than I can preach. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.